It had been a very, very long day. The better part of our youth group had spent the last 28 hours traveling from Joplin, Missouri to the eastern coast of Brisbane, Australia. We arrived at our host homes late in the afternoon, just a little bit too late for afternoon tea. George and Olive Baxter were members of a new church that had been launched in Brisbane, and the planter was best friends with our youth minister, and so he had invited our youth group down uh, to help get this new church's uh, youth group kind of kick-started uh, with a, a couple weeks of youth meetings and a revival and church camp and all sorts of fun stuff. So George and Olive uh, hosted me and my friend Brian, who now preaches in Tulsa, and a couple of our sponsors, Ken and Dan. George and Olive were actually brother and sister. They, um, George's wife had passed away many years before. Olive had never married, and so they, they shared a home together, and they were old school, right? Three square meals a day. So we'd spent all this time traveling, and they told us, whatever you do, don't fall asleep. Make yourself stay awake um, so that you don't get jet lag. And so we were sitting there with George watching a cricket match, which is actually, I don't know if you know this or not, the most boring sport on earth. And so desperately trying to stay awake, my eyelids were about to slam shut for good when Olive finally called us for dinner. And we walked into the table, and our minds were collectively blown in that moment because she had prepared a five-course feast for us. First, we had tea and chicken noodle soup. And then there was bread and fruit. And then she served a beautiful fresh green salad. And then half of a roast chicken each, I'm not kidding, we each were served a breast, a wing, a thigh, and a leg along with mashed potatoes and gravy and a heaping helping of green beans. And then to finish it off, this is all completely true, she gave each of us a giant slab of apple pie with a huge domed mound of vanilla ice cream. We were absolutely stuffed. And later, after the four of us were getting settled into our uh, sleeping quarters in the basement, we began to debate why they fed us so generously. We talked about uh, what it could have been, like, you know, is this normal? Do Aussies always do this? And finally, what we landed on was, well, you know, they know we're Americans, and that was a fairly stereotypical, you know, I mean, all that food was normal here, too, and so maybe they just thought that's how all Americans eat. We were wrong. We were very, very wrong. Because at breakfast the next morning, we again were served five courses tea and toast to begin with, then um, fruit and uh, various kinds of jam, then a small savory quiche each, and then the main course came out, fried eggs and bacon and, you know, beans and uh, tomatoes, and then finally for dessert, uh, a coffee cake with freshly ground and brewed coffee. We got together with the rest of our team later that morning. And uh, they were all kind of grousing about only having had tea and toast for breakfast. Most of them were used to cereal and juice and something more substantial. And they said, we only got tea and toast, and one kid didn't get anything. Their, their host family had to rush off to work, and, and so they just were fasting 
And then they looked at the four of us, and they said, well, what did you guys have for breakfast? And we said, you don't want to know. And they said, oh, is it that bad? And we said, no, we don't want to make you guilty of the sin of envy. Uh, we feasted, and we began to describe this much to the uh, pain of our co-laborers there. We're going to talk about food today. Open your Bibles or your Bible apps to John 6. I'm so glad that you're joining us today. I know that um, you're watching this because you couldn't be with us live. Today is an experiment Sunday at Chapel Rock, so everybody that's normally here in the auditorium where I am is actually down in the Fellowship Hall, and we pre-recorded this. Um, so you're actually getting the first run of the sermon, so I hope you'll be patient with me because I just finished this thing a little while ago. But... Uh, we're going to try this. We're, we're doing something very different down there around tables, and everyone's going to have some bread uh, and juice, and you'll see why here in a little bit. Um, but I'm glad you're, you're watching online. If you would, when we're all done, fill out your online connection card. Let us know that you, you participated in this uh, with us, and, uh, and if you have any prayer requests, we'd be pleased to, to pray for you this week. Um, how many of you have ever had a meal in courses? Have you ever had that privilege? It really is a privilege for someone to serve a five-course meal, and it goes all the way up to 12. If you're a Downton Abbey fan, you've seen those large, lavish meals that people used to have 120, you know, 150 years ago. Typically, a five-course meal includes a soup, an appetizer, a salad, a main dish, and a dessert. And one day, 2,000 years ago, near the Sea of Galilee, Jesus didn't quite give his followers that kind of feast, but they sure thought he could. In the passage just preceding the one that we're going to read, Jesus has just fed 5,000 people. He spent the whole day teaching and them, and then he dismissed the crowd after he fed the 5,000. The disciples got in a boat and rode on. Jesus stayed behind by himself for a while. Later that night he is when Jesus walks on the water. He goes out to meet them, and, and the boat lands at Capernaum. The crowd gets up the next morning and they're like, Where are, where's the disciples? Where's Jesus? They can't find him. Well, they go to Capernaum to find Jesus. And, and that's where we're going to pick up our text today. Friends, we have a feast. This text lays out a grand meal for us in three courses. First, the appetizer, and then the bread, and then the main course. Do you like appetizers? I mean, they're supposed to whet our appetite, right? It's just... It's just a little bite to kind of get your stomach juices going, get you ready for the real thing. Just like we looked at last week, John uses a literary form called the dialogue between Jesus and the crowd. And this dialogue it begins with three questions that the crowd um, asks Jesus and then his answers. Look with me at John chapter 6, uh, starting in verse um, 25. The text says, When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, Very truly, I tell you, you are looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they ask him, What must we do to do the works that God requires? Jesus answered, The works... Or the work, rather, of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they ask him, what sign will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. 
Jesus said to them, Very truly, I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. In this section in John 6, the people approach Jesus for food. And even though they were misguided, that's really the proper posture for us. How you approach Jesus matters. Just like an appetizer is an approach to a meal, how you approach Jesus matters. First, the people approach Jesus and they ask this question, and his response really is responding to their materialism. <laughs> Jesus, you know, they ask him, Rabbi, when, when did you get here? And what that's revealing is their uh, deep sense of uh, materialism, that, that they're looking for food. <laughs> they just want another free meal. And Jesus' statement then um, is, is interesting. He, he hears their materialism and he responds, Amen, amen. That's literally what it says in Greek. It's translated, I tell you the truth. You'll see that four times through this passage. And what it means is this is something you can take to the bank. This is true. This is dependable. It's trustworthy. It's reliable. He says, I tell you the truth. Don't work for food that spoils but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man, referencing himself there, can give you. Please understand, he's not commanding them to stop working for a living. The Bible is very clear, you know, the text says, if a man will not work, neither shall he eat. He's not saying don't work and just ask God to take care of all your daily needs, though you should ask God to do that. He's not commanding them not to work. He's saying that what they should really hunger for is not just physical food, but spiritual food. What Jesus is picking up on here is the fact that what they want is the stuff that God provides and not a relationship with God himself. And that's a problem. So their second question in this dialogue, what must we do to do the works that God requires, implies both a sense of desire and a sense of self-sufficiency. The people seemed sure that they were capable of doing what God wanted them to do. And if you, Jesus would just tell them what that was, then they could do it, and God would take care of everything they could ever possibly want or need. And Jesus has to kind of push into that, too, and press into it a little bit. In fact, the way that John uses the word translated works here implies that the work matches the character of the one doing it. They want to try to feed themselves and depend on their own righteousness. And Jesus says, that's not how this works. That's not how these works work. <laughs> if you're watching with someone, um, the screen is going to pause for a little bit and go blurry. And I'd like for you to discuss this uh, with, with the people who are there with you. Or, or maybe if you're watching by yourself, watching later, just think about this for a little bit. Has there ever been a time that you weren't sure what God required of you? Has that ever happened to you? And if so, what did you do in that moment? You think about that uh, for just a second as the video pauses and we'll carry on. The third question that the people ask is this. They ask, what miraculous sign will you perform so that we can see it and believe in you? 
Now, these people are either forgetful or naive or just dumb. I don't know. I don't know what's going on. Because a large number of these folks would have been part of the crowd of 5,000 men, not counting women and children, that Jesus just fed the day before. Like, that's not miraculous enough? Like, what are you looking for, people? Well, what they're looking for is to hold Jesus to the same standard as Moses. See, it was a common Jewish expectation for the restoration of manna to begin in the Messianic age. People expected that when the Messiah came, just like it talks about in Exodus 16, that they would continue to have manna from heaven, that just like Moses, that the Messiah would provide bread from heaven, or sometimes what they called spiritual bread. Jesus informed the people that Moses did not give them true spiritual bread. In fact, the Greek word translated true in verse 32 means genuine or original. Here's the thing. Eating manna never once made any Jew more obedient to the covenant or more like God. And just as physical food is necessary for physical life, Jesus is teaching them spiritual food is necessary for spiritual life. And so many times we're content with an appetizer when God wants to give us a much greater meal. Have you noticed lately, if you've been out to eat, that appetizers are getting bigger and bigger and bigger? You can have an entire meal that's really just designed to be an appetizer. It's crazy. Now, sometimes Deb and, the, Deb and I will do that for the kids. We'll go to Sam's, we'll buy a bunch of different kind of appetizers, and that will be dinner. It's a fun treat for the kids. We do it every, I don't know, maybe five or six months. We don't do it very often. But these appetizers nowadays in restaurants are getting so big, it's basically a meal. And I wonder sometimes if it's possible that in the 21st century American church, we're just trying an appetizer of Jesus. And then we get all full on fluff and appetizers and don't have room for the real thing. We don't have room for the real feast when it's time for... Jesus to serve that. Jesus is telling the people, you've messed up your priorities. You're getting full on appetizers. And I'm asking you this morning, what are you hungry for, church? Because I can tell you what satisfies. Jesus. He offers an appetizer, yes. He provides healing and he provides food. And and if you've got a crisis in in your marriage, Jesus can heal that. And, And Jesus can help you get out of debt. Yes, but those are his appetizers. He's got so much more to give you to bring you into wholeness in him. See, the people's appetite was misplaced, but at least they knew they were hungry, right? I mean, that's progress. So Jesus encouraged them to move on to the next course. That's the bread course in the text. Bread is probably one of the most basic human foods in existence. Nearly every culture that's ever existed has had some kind of bread. And just as bread is the most basic kind of food, belief is the most basic characteristic of a follower of Jesus. Look with me at verse 35 through verse 46. Look at this. Uh, In John chapter 6, starting in verse 35. They had just said, Sir, always give us this bread, verse 34. Then Jesus declared, verse 35, I am the bread of life. 
Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day, a promise of resurrection. At this, the Jews there began to grumble about him, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus? Implied answer, yes, it is. The son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know. How can he now say, I came down from heaven? Stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. And he's telling them that he's the fulfillment of that. Everyone who has heard the Father and learned from him comes to me. No one, who has, seen the, no one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. Jesus shocked the people by telling them, I am the bread of life. In that statement, Jesus claimed to be the only permanent satisfaction for our desire for life. And one key to understanding this passage is that the the definition of the word belief changes based on who's using the word. It's the same word. It's the normal New Testament word for faith. But the people's use of the word belief in verse 30 is different in meaning than Jesus' use of the word belief in verse 35. To the people, the word belief used in verse 30 meant acceptance of Jesus' competence on the basis of his miracles. In other words, he can do this awesome stuff, so we'll believe that he's from God. And to Jesus, the word belief means commitment. Not necessarily on the basis of his miracles, but rather on his character, on who he is. That he is the Son of God who came down from heaven. In fact, six times in the immediate context, verse 33, verse 38, verse 41, verse 50, verse 51, and verse 58, Jesus says that he came down from heaven. His claim to heavenly origin is uncontestable in this passage. So to those who say, well, Jesus never claimed to be God, I'm like, he did it six times in one chapter. And it talks about the Jews. Did you see that? Now, please understand, John is not being anti-Semitic. He's a Jew, okay? He can't be anti-Semitic. He are one. He's not, when he talks about the Jews, that's kind of John's shorthand for the people in the Jewish culture who opposed Jesus. There were plenty of Jewish people who followed Jesus. He was one of them. But when John talks about the Jews, capital J, He's referencing this segment of Jewish society that was in opposition to Jesus. These are probably local people there in Capernaum. They, and they're showing some acquaintance with Jesus' family, right? He's still in Galilee. He's from Nazareth. He grew up not far away. And so to them, his claim of heavenly origin was unbelievable. And, that's yet, and yet that's what Jesus is asking them to believe. 
And, and they, they're grumbling about it. And Jesus rebukes him. He says, stop your grumbling. He said, you wouldn't come to me if the Father were not drawing you to me. Now, this is what's interesting. The meaning of the word draw there means to pull or to tug. It even means to drag, even in the face of inertia, right? We're going to just drag you over here. Jesus makes it plain in this text that human salvation is no surprise to God. When, when on, on Sunday mornings, every week, when we offer an invitation and somebody walks down the aisle to accept Jesus as their Savior, God is not shocked because he's been drawing them to himself. He summons us to himself through the Spirit and through the proclamation and reading of his word. Salvation is only available at God's invitation, and there are no restrictions on that invitation. Jesus says emphatically, he will not refuse anyone who comes to him. Listen, if you're watching this, and maybe you're watching the live stream, or maybe you're watching the recording later, and you're wrestling with the idea of acceptance, and feeling like nobody accepts you, and you don't fit in, and you don't belong, I want to tell you this morning, right now, whenever you're watching this, Jesus accepts you. And when you come to him, it's not a surprise. He, he, he's not caught unawares. He's, he's drawing you to himself this very moment. Even as you watch this, Jesus is drawing you to himself. And God draws us to himself in both natural ways, conversations that we have with people in our lives, and in supernatural ways, ways through, through the way that the Spirit works in our life, through our reading and, and hearing of the Word of God. Let me just pause the, this, the video again. It'll kind of get blurry, and, and we're just going to pause here for a second. I want you to think about what did God do in your life to draw you to himself? Maybe, maybe write that down. If you're watching this with a group, you can, you can share that among each other for a second. Pause the video if you need to and, and share what God did to draw you into a relationship with him. See, when we come to Jesus for the bread of life. We place ourselves in a position of dependence on God. And I, I, I want to urge you this morning, or whenever you're watching this, do not be content with cotton candy Christianity. I, I, because Jesus wants to give you bread. <laughs> he is the bread of life. He is the, the true sustenance that comes from God. Don't be content with, with a, a hurried devotion that you listen to on your phone while you're sitting at a red light. Feast on Jesus and his word. Talk to him. Pour your life into a relationship with Jesus and you every day will get fresh bread, the bread of life that will strengthen you for the days to come. Not only does Jesus want to give you bread, he really wants to give you so much more of who he is. And that really leads us to talking about the main course in this multi-course meal, this time when Jesus uses food to just blow our minds. In this, the next section, which is difficult, it means hard, <laughs> Jesus gets right to the meat of his teaching, pun intended. 
that our spiritual sustenance depends on our consumption of his flesh and blood is how he phrases it. Look with me at John chapter 6, starting in verse 41. We're going to read to verse 59. Look at this. Or verse, excuse me, um, verse 46. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. Very truly, I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Then the Jews begin to argue sharply among themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died. But whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. He said this while teaching in the synagogue at Capernaum. As emphatically as he can, Jesus is saying that the one who believes in him will have eternal life. Now the grammar that John uses here to express what Jesus is teaching uh, is, describes a uh, a believer using a part of speech that indicates that the person's life is characterized by ongoing belief in Jesus and not just starting to believe. Again, Jesus says, I am the bread of life in verse 35. Now before, he linked that statement to the supplying of basic human needs. Hunger and thirst would ultimately be alleviated, he says. This time, he links the statement to life itself. He says, if you want to have life, you have to get it through me. I'm the main course. I'm the way that you get life. And now life is one of John's, and, and by extension Jesus' favorite themes, but this is not just the opposite of life. This is not just bios, the normal word for life. This is the Greek word zoe. It's life like God has life. See, when the Jews ate the, the heavenly bread, the manna, manna is a Hebrew word, literally means what is it, because they didn't know. When they ate the manna in the wilderness in Exodus 16, their physical needs were met. However, they still died, verse 49 says. Jesus says that he's the bread that comes down from heaven, which someone may eat and not die. Now, it's crucial that we understand the nature of the word eat here. Up to verse 54, the word translated eat is the normal Greek word for eat. It's the one you see over and over and over and over again through the New Testament. It's, it just means to eat, right? Just put food in your face. In verse 54, Jesus changes the word. We'll talk about that in a little bit. The, to eat of this bread is a metaphor for belief. Because nobody will eat what they... <laughs> What they trust, you know, what they don't trust to be edible, right? You've all been somewhere and you've had that experience where someone hands you something and you're not sure about it. And you're like, hey, look, is that a rabbit over there? You know, and you try to get rid of it because 
you're not like, I don't know if this is good to eat. You know, never, ever, 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 ever eat anything a two-year-old tries to put in your mouth. Ever. You just trust me on that. <laughs> don't do it. To eat a meal, to put something in your mouth, implies that you believe that it's wholesome and nourishing and real. And Jesus says, I am that. You have to put me into your life. You have to consume me to have life. In fact, verse 51 introduces the concept for the first time in John's gospel of Jesus' vicarious death, that he died on the cross in our place for our sin, that he sacrificed his body for the sins of the world. He even said that in verse 51, that that I am the true bread that came down from heaven. I, I, I sacrifice myself for the world. Man, that just sets the Jews off big time. And by the way, some people have claimed, well, they just, people just misunderstood what Jesus was teaching about himself. That's not possible. It's not possible that they misunderstood what he said because they responded, how can this man give us his flesh to eat, right? They completely understood literally what Jesus was saying. See, the Jews had many forbidden foods, but the entire Greco-Roman world, the entire known world of Jesus' time abhorred cannibalism. Like, that was, that was against the rules everywhere, not just for Jewish people. In fact, the Romans later misinterpreted this kind of language that, that ultimately led to the teaching of the Lord's Supper, and they thought that Christians were actually practicing cannibalism. And amazingly, rather than walking back his statement, Jesus kind of leans into it. He repeats his previous statement and then added something that would have been even more repulsive to the Jews. He said, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Now let me just pause here for a second. Um, For our people uh, who are here on Experiment Sunday, they're going to discuss this. You can have a discussion if you're watching with others. You can take a moment and think about it yourself. But here's the question. If you hadn't ever gotten any teaching about the nature of the Lord's Supper, how do you think you would respond if you were sitting in the synagogue that day in Capernaum and Jesus said you had to eat his body and drink his blood? Just how, how, if you've never heard about communion, what are you thinking when he says that? See, if what Jesus said before was confusing to the Jews, this latter statement would have bordered on gross sin. (laughs) The law of Moses expressly forbade any drinking of blood. Three times in this context, Jesus refers to the importance of eating his flesh and drinking his blood. There's no mistaking what he said. Nobody just misunderstood Jesus here. And then, then he blows their mind. He changes his word for eat. Up to this point, Jesus had been using the normal word for eat. It's the Greek word estheo. That even sounds kind of pretty, doesn't it? <laughs> estheo. It's almost like the word aesthetics, right? It sounds beautiful. It's, it's a normal word. I'm, I'm, I'm eating this wonderful, delicious meal, and we're having a nice five-course dinner party, and it sounds, it sounds nice. And Jesus changes the word in verse 54. He changes the word from estheo, which means eat, to trogo, 
which means to gnaw, to chew, to devour. If you've got a dog, you've seen this, right? You throw them a bone and they get into it. They just start gnawing on this thing. That's the word Jesus uses when he talks about what it means to take him into our life. This change from estheo to trogo might, let's be honest, it might just be for the sake of grammatical variety. I think it's far more likely, given the context, that Jesus is making this change intentionally. What he's doing is intensifying the the nature of the feeding that the people must do if they want to have life. He's telling them, I am the main course. He's calling us to consume him, to gnaw and chew on him, to feast on him. And some of you are thinking, oh, Casey, don't be gross. You're saying this in church. Yeah. Where was Jesus when he said it? Look back at verse 59. He's in the synagogue in Capernaum, man. He's in church. Jesus said this in church. See, what Jesus is talking about here is as real to him, the spiritual life that we have by feasting on him, as the physical, counterpart, as the physical counterparts that his opponents thought he meant. That Jesus is real food. He is real drink that produces a real life in you. And so my question for you as you're watching this is, is Jesus all you hunger for? Is he the very bread that sustains you? Do you feed on Jesus? Do you know how to do that? By reading his word, speaking to him, through worship, through service, using the gifts that he's given you? Do you feed on Jesus? Do you consume Jesus every day? Think about it. Jesus commanded us to pray for our daily bread. Maybe he meant more than just bread. Listen, if you're not feasting on Jesus, you are pursuing something that does not give life. And I want to challenge you to choose the bread of life over that stale, moldy bread of sin. I love a meal in courses. I remember pushing back from the table <laughs> that first breakfast in Australia. Man, we felt ready to take that city for Jesus. We were ready for anything. We'd had a good night's sleep and a feast. Bring it on, man. Let's go. <laughs> Let's go do some missions, right? I think that's what Jesus is telling you. Maybe you're watching this this morning live. Maybe you're watching the recording later. I think he's telling you this morning to learn to feast on him, to hunger for him alone. And you'll be ready for anything this life can throw at you, as well as ready for life in eternity. See, here's the big idea today. Here's what I want you to get. If you learn to feast on Jesus, you will have life. Some of you might be thinking, wait a minute, Casey, you talked about an appetizer and bread, the main course. What about dessert? Don't forget dessert. (laughs) Dessert is coming. The table is set. The host is waiting. But not all the seats are full yet. 
And so one day the host will come and we will rise and we will go to that meal that has long been prepared for us and we will feast with Jesus. Now, when the rest of the crew meets down in the fellowship hall, we're going to share a communion service together. Big hunks of bread, big cups of juice. And we're going to challenge our people. We're going to challenge our church to take a moment and gnaw on that bread. Normally when we do communion, it's a tiny little wafer. Today, the way we're doing it is to get a big old honking hunk of bread. We'll have gluten-free for the gluten-free people. And really chew on it and think about Jesus' sacrifice for you on the cross. And I would encourage those of you watching at home or watching later to do the same. To go to your pantry, get out some bread, grab some juice if you got it. If you don't have juice, whatever other thing that makes you think of blood. <laughs> and uh, maybe wine, maybe, you know, fruit punch, I don't care. You know, something that reminds you of that. And spend some time really thinking about the fact that Jesus gave his very body so that you could have life, and he encourages you to feast on him every day and have life. Let me pray for you. God, thank you for those watching today. I'm grateful that, that uh, they're able to do that. I pray, Lord, that you would um, bless them with life today, Jesus. That every time that they eat bread in the near future, every time that they drink the fruit of the vine, Lord, that they would be reminded of how much you love them and how you gave your life on the cross for them so that they could have life. We love you, Jesus. Thank you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Thanks for watching today.